The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are so challenging and so complex and indeed so chilling that there is a disconcertingly high percentage of churches that just skip them. They're going through Matthew, they just pick like the highlights and they just skip 23 and 24 and 25 because they think that's weird and odd and we don't even want to deal with it. But praise God, this is life-affirming truth from our Lord. And we need Matthew 24 and 25. And I want to spend actually several Sundays in it. Not only do I not want to skip it, (laughs) I want to descend on it and make sure we're shaped by it and challenged by it. Let me remind you some very important reasons that we should embrace and appreciate teaching like Matthew 24 and 25. First, let's remember in Matthew chapter 1, when we learn that God the Son has become flesh, we're to call him Jesus. Do you remember why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And if we have no sense of the calamity of the future, we have no urgency for the need of salvation. We have no, we have no appreciation for the great grace of God, unless we know how awful things will be apart from it. Also remember the book ends in chapter 28, with Jesus saying, go therefore and make disciples. Now that urgency is tied to the end of the age and the confidence to make disciples is his promise at the end of the Great Commission. Lo, I'm with you always, even till, and this is very important in light of today's text, the end of the age. So Matthew 24 and 25 remind us of some vital things. They remind us that sin has ruined God's good design. The world is not what it should be because we have rejected God himself. And in our rejections, the world is under a curse. And that curse will get worse And the world will need to be renewed and restored. But God is so good that he will reconcile all things to himself. And he can reconcile any person, no matter who they are or what they've done, if they will turn to Jesus, the person speaking in today's passage. This passage reminds us that there is a good Savior, and we know deep down that we need him. This passage also reminds us for a longing that all of us have. We long for a future, and we long for history to have a purpose. Um, I read in 2017 an article in CNBC, and the article in CNBC said that the the co-founders of Google and many others are using cryogenics or gene therapies to attempt to live after death in what's called a longevity lab. Let me quote the article verbatim. Investing in biotech breakthroughs is one way the super-rich are trying to stay young and healthy indefinitely. Others in the community are settling for cryogenic freezing in the hopes that they can one day be thawed once regenerative science has sufficiently advanced. They interviewed the people, the co-founders of Google, and here's what one of them said at 30 years old. The proposition that we can live forever is obvious. It doesn't violate the laws of physics, and we will achieve it. So the co-founder of Google knows, even at 30 years old, I want to live after this life, and I'd like to stay young. And I'm like, have you heard of the Bible? <laughs> you know? 
See, everyone longs for a certain future. Everyone wants to believe their life will go beyond just this life. And without passages like this, we forget history is going somewhere. Not only is history going somewhere, but history has a final verdict. I love reading biographies. Something interesting, if you read multiple biographers about the same human figure, they can never agree on their assessment of him. Was Lincoln good or bad? Was Churchill a believer or an unbeliever? You read 10 biographers, you get about 10 options. Do you know why? Because humans can never make a final assessment that's perfectly accurate. We can never know someone's inner being or thoughts. We can't know the matrix of complexities going on behind their life. And yet, deep down, we really do long for true justice. For someone who would know everything and would make a right final assessment. Now, I've never seen the TV show The Morning Show. So I'm referring to something I have no knowledge of. But apparently, it's a television show on Apple TV+. And the show is based off of a real-life event. It's based off of Matt Lauer, who was convicted of serious sexual assault on his own morning show. And the premise, apparently, of this television show, The Morning Show, was how do we think through what should happen to someone who's committed egregious actions? Now, I've never seen the show, but this week I saw a headline about the show's failure to competently deal with such an assessment. And that intrigued me, so I read the article. It's by Daniel Daddario, and it was written in Variety magazine. And here's what he wrote now two two seasons into the morning show. He said, Any sense of potential consequence for the assaulter has fallen away. The question of justice this show set as its target has been finally and permanently evaded. Why can't the morning show determine what to do even with a fictitious character who's a sexual assaulter? The answer is, when we reject God, we no longer have any way to assess anything. And so we still have a longing for justice, but we have no just judge. So the good news of Matthew 24 and 25 is history is reaching a final verdict, and the judge will justly give it. So all the biographies that we've written that can't agree on who's who and what's what, there is someone who will. So today's passage, chapter 24, we'll only go about 30 verses today. And then over the next few Sundays, Lord willing, we'll go through 24 and 25. They all answer this big underlying question. How should we live in light of the end? How should we live in light of the end? And this morning, um, I'm going to try to show you six things. This passage says they're not in your notes. They're not in the bulletin because I wrote them last night. <laughs> okay. So you may have to try to fill those ones in as we go. But I see six in today's passage and then more as we keep going. And we're going to try to faithfully unpack this, this very important passage. Let's begin in verse 1 of Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now just picture this. They're walking. They see the magnificent temple in Jerusalem and it's being expanded to and more infrastructure is being built on. And so the, the disciples are impressed with it. Verse 2, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Right after they're impressed with a new skyscraper, so to speak, he points out that it's going to be demolished. To which they would think, well, okay, what, what are you talking about? When is all that going to happen? So verse 3, 
As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, notice that makes it different than his previous discourses. Now he's talking to just his disciples privately. What will the sign of the coming or when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now the key word there is coming. All the other descriptions are meant to get at that word. When are these things going to be? What will be the sign? How do we know the end of the age? Because it's all tied to the coming. The Greek word is parousia, or sometimes pronounced parousia. And it's repeated by Jesus later in the chapter, in verse 27, verse 37, and verse 39. The word parousia, if you translate it literally, means presence or full manifestation or revelation. But the English translation coming is a good one because Jesus uses the Greek word in a technical sense to refer to his return. And we're about to enter December, which is when we talk about Advent. Advent, many of you have an Advent calendar. Advent means you count down the days to Christmas Day, the day that Jesus first came. But this text is about his second Advent, and the parousia is about his second Advent, his return. Something we're supposed to be aware of and be thinking about and be shaped by. And so the answers Jesus is going to give all have to deal with his second coming. Now, please catch this concept. It'll help us tremendously. Here's why I think we get so confused. Have you ever asked a question and the answer was way more than you wanted to know? (laughs) Ask an engineer anything. (laughs) That's about how it goes. All these details come in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You get all these extra specificities. So the disciples, like you and I would do, ask the Lord of history, hey, what's going to happen in history? And they get a very lengthy answer, and it's probably beyond what they're originally expecting. But here, if you can keep this framework in your mind, it'll help you a lot. The end has come. The end is coming. The end will come. Keep that in your head. The end has come. The end is coming. The end will come. Now, if there's ever a passage in the Bible that we need all the rest of the Bible, it's Matthew 24 and 25. I wish for the next 60 days we could meet two hours every morning and go through all of the prophets when they talk about the day of the Lord. Let's work through Daniel. Let's work through Ezekiel. Let's work through Isaiah. Let's go through all the minor prophets. Then let's go through Peter and John and Paul. It would help me. It would help all of us. We can't. So this morning's sermon, I'm going to give you some breadcrumbs, but you're going to have to follow the trail on your own. Here's one breadcrumb for you, Hebrews 9. Verse 26 that says, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to to offer himself a sacrifice for sin. Hebrews said when Jesus died, that was the end of the ages, the beginning of the end. The end has come. And yet two verses later it says in verse 28, so he will appear a second time, meaning the end is coming. So the end has come, the end is coming, the end will come. And brothers and sisters, by the way, our salvation is described the same way. You, you can legitimately say, you know, 30 years ago, I called on Jesus Christ and I turned to him and I was saved. You can also legitimately say, I am being saved. And this week, God changed these attitudes in my heart. And you can also say, I will be saved in the final day. The same description is being used here. So with that in mind, now, Jesus, let's follow him as he tells us how to live in light of the end that has come, is coming, and will come. Verse 4. 
Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. This is the first imperative verb he gives to his followers. How can we live in light of the end? Do not be led astray. This would be number one of the six things I added last night. Number one, how can I live in light of the end? Do not be led astray by those who twist the truth. Here's how they twist it. Verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now here's why you should not be led astray, as Jesus will go on to explain in chapter 24. When the true Messiah comes back, you will know it. (laughs) You will know it. So you do not need to be led astray by anyone who falsely presents that they are him. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Here comes our second imperative command from Jesus. See that you are not alarmed. So number one, don't be led astray. Number two, do not be alarmed. We really need to take this one to heart because we have 24-hour news cycles. Do not be alarmed. For this must take place, which means there's someone sovereign over it. But the end is not yet. So the end has come, the end is coming, but there's a final end that hasn't come yet. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, but all these are just the beginning of birth pains. Now there's a key metaphor Jesus uses throughout this chapter, and it is the metaphor of childbirth. And I know some of you ladies present right now are pregnant, and I hope Jesus' metaphor won't speed anything along. (laughs) But this metaphor is very important for us to grasp. God has allowed me to uh, be with my wife for four of these special occurrences where the birth pains come, and it's the beginning of the end, but it's not the end. You know when the contractions are there. You know when the day has come. But you need to live ready for that day. You need to have a bag packed. You're ready to stay overnight. You hopefully know your doctor. You know the route. When, uh, Of course, I live up north when my four kids were born. And I'll tell you, in Michigan, if you're having a child near Christmas, (laughs) our son Asher was born the day after Christmas, and you know the snow, you know the weather, you have a bag of salt in the back of your car, you have extra tires because you know you have to get there even in inclement weather. You're prepared for the day. And the birth plans simply remind you that day is coming. They don't necessarily mean it's today, but they remind you it will happen. Now, don't be led astray and don't be alarmed because the day is coming and yet God is in control. And he who called you is good. And he will work out all things for his glory and the good of those who love him. So don't be led astray. Now, don't forget what they asked for. They asked for a sign singular. (laughs) Jesus gives them more than they expected. So far, we've got false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, famines and earthquakes. That's just verses 5 through 8. Now let's keep going to verses 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. These are descriptions of this whole period of time known as the end. The end is not yet. These are the beginning of birth pains. But they're reminders that the end is coming. Verse 10, And many, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now, I know I'm preaching now, but let me just tell you honestly what I did this week when I was working through this passage and trying to outline everything on it. On verses 10, 11, and 12, I wrote 2020. Many will fall away. Where'd everybody go? Many will betray one another. I thought we were together. Many will hate one another. Don't we? Aren't we brothers and sisters? Verse 11, many false prophets will arise. Hey, you don't need the Lord. You don't need the church. Verse 12, lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. Has that not described the world in the last year and a half? These are the birth pains that remind us the end is coming. They don't mean the end is necessarily right now, but the reminders that it certainly will come. They may occur again in a hundred years from now, but they are birth pains that remind us the end will come. Verse 10, this, this is very important to hear. They're falling away if they remain away demonstrates they had never embraced the true gospel. They had only embraced a superficial, false, counterfeit gospel, like the health and wealth gospel. And once it becomes difficult to follow the Lord, that's not what I signed up for. Many people view the gospel like a packet of crystal light that you put in a bottle of water. I already have the water. Let me just add a little flavor to give it a little oomph. What the Bible actually tells us is we have an empty cup and only Christ is the living water. So we come to him and we have him and all that comes with it and we consider it a joy even to be to suffer for the sake of the name who has filled our cup. Verse 11, not only will there be people that fall away, but verse 11, there will be false prophets. Now, verse 5 said there were false messiahs. A false messiah claims to be Jesus. A false prophet claims to speak for Jesus, but does so falsely. And verse 12, picture two rising things. As lawlessness increases, love goes cold. So one rises, the other dips. But be encouraged by verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And listen, if you truly have embraced the gospel, as we sang earlier, he will hold you fast. Your preservation is secured by his unbreakable grip, and therefore you will persevere. Craig Blomberg writes, here is the true biblical promise of eternal security or perseverance of the saints. Not that all who profess Christ persevere, because some are false professors, but that those who do persevere demonstrate they were truly gods. So, here are the four that I have so far if you're, if you're taking the new notes. How should we live in light of the end? Number one, don't be led astray. Number two, don't be alarmed. Number three, don't be surprised when things get bad. And number four, don't be afraid. True Christians will persevere to the end. Don't be surprised when things get bad, but don't be afraid. True Christians will persevere to the end. So they asked Jesus a question. When is, when are these things going to be? What is the sign? What is, when is your coming? And his answer so far has been, it'll, it'll happen, but it's going to, there's going to be a delay. Now, lest we get overly pessimistic, praise God for verse 14. And while all that's happening, 
This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So while the world is experiencing wars and calamities, the gospel will go global. Praise God. And this global proclamation reminds us that the Lord is not only sovereign over all the evil that's happening, but he's good and he is a gracious purpose even through it. Don't forget what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3. Remember how he said, just like people deny the flood would ever happen, and then it happens, so people deny the day of the Lord's going to happen, but it's going to happen. But why is God being patient? Because he is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come into the knowledge of the truth. So his patience is so the gospel can go global. What a good God. Which is why number five, do not lose hope. The gospel will go global. Number one, don't be led astray. Number two, don't be alarmed. Number three, don't be surprised. Number four, don't be afraid. But number five, don't lose hope. The gospel will go global. Now verse 15. Verses 4 through 14 were the beginning of birth pains, but now it ratchets up here in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, I thought about making just verse 15 its own sermon. John MacArthur made just verse 15 its own sermon. There's that much in it. We would have to talk about Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks. We'd have to talk about 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, and the man of lawlessness who's revealed when he desecrates the temple by proclaiming himself to be God. And in the right venue, I do need to teach you all these things. This morning, it's important that we at least understand that Jesus is now referring to what he will call in the next couple of verses the Great Tribulation. Now, let me just tell you the experience I had this week, and I hate experiences like this. I'm not going to name their names. My absolute favorite living New Testament scholars, exegetes that I love, some of whom I've met personally, love these guys. I read about nine or ten commentaries. I couldn't find anybody of the nine or ten who thought this was the tribulation period. They all want to believe this is the first century when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. But the text cannot work that way. And I've had such a difficult week just trying to square, why do these people who I respect so much refuse to see what the text so clearly says? And I think it's because they have other theological commitments already. Just look honestly with the text. Verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 17, let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in the house. 18, let one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. 19, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Verse 20, pray for them that their flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. Now notice verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. How could that be the first century? How could that be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? That makes no sense. Verse 21 is describing the very end before the very end. The great tribulation of which there's never been a time that bad. In fact, look in verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. That can't be the first century. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is the great tribulation that Revelation speaks so clearly about right before the Son of Man returns. 
Now, many scholars who I love, and they're, I think they're normally right, and of course they could be right here, and I could be wrong. But they think, well, no, it's just a sharp pain, it's just the first century. No, no, these are the final contractions. This is right before the end. And as you keep reading, it becomes harder and harder to deny that because Jesus then talks about his own return. So let's continue here. We just read. Let's continue now in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Verse 25, see, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now is the answer to their initial question. When is the sign of your coming? It'll be like lightning striking. Everyone will know it. It'll be an, it'll be a such demonstrable sign that you cannot miss it. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather is a proverbial way of saying it will be known. So Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension is the beginning of the end, but then the church lives in the end, but then the final end will come. Now, a lot of people get confused here and they say, Josh, this doesn't make any sense because verse 34 says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I admit that's a hard verse and many people struggle with it, but I think the illustration Jesus gives actually gives us the answer. The illustration is of a fig tree. We have one in our backyard. As one of you graciously helped me understand, that's what it was. <laughs> and the fig tree in our backyard, when it starts to have leaves, you know, summer is coming. In the same way, when you see that first flower bloom, you know you're in a new season. When our Lord ascended and went back, we knew we were in a new season. The end has come, and it is coming, and it will come. And they saw that first flower bloom when their Lord went to heaven. Remember what the apostle said to him in Acts 1. Is this the time? Now is this the end? And remember what the angels told them. No, the same Jesus who you saw ascend to the clouds will return in the same way. So this characterizes the end. But when the end comes, as verse 27 says, the Son of Man's coming will be as clear as lightning. It will be visible to everyone on earth. Now look in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation, this makes it unmistakably clear, right after that great tribulation of those days, that specific tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. This is it. But notice how the world reacts when the king returns. Verse 30 continues, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Revelation 1 says it this way in verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. See, Jesus' return makes clear that the rejection of him means eternal destruction. For him to return in power and glory means the lamb who has been pierced has returned as the lion. 
But let me encourage you who know the Lord. Look in verse 31. He will send out his angels. Notice, his angels, because he's God the Son. With a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Brothers and sisters, praise God. His angels will receive all of us. If we're here when he returns, he will receive all who are his, and there will be no empty chairs in heaven. He'll get everyone. So this leads me to number six of the six things I said I'd give you. Number one, don't be led astray. Number two, don't be alarmed. Number three, don't be surprised. Number four, don't be afraid. Number five, don't lose hope. Number six, don't forget the king returns in power and glory and gathers all who are his. The king of kings is coming back. And when he returns, he comes in power and glory and receives all who are his. Now we can go to the bulletin if you have one. And let me give you some big applications for this morning, and we'll look at some of these more and more as we go into it. Number one, remember history is going somewhere. Do you know that we're not random atoms bouncing around in the universe? We're not in a cycle of repetition or reincarnation. We're not drifting into endless variables of the unknown and who knows what could happen. None of those things are true. Nor are we going to simply cease to exist in annihilation. All of us were made for eternity. We have eternity in our hearts and there is a Lord over history that is working all things towards its intended end. Ephesians 1.11 According to Him, the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, Your word is settled in heaven. Number two, it will get worse before the end. Man's descent. 2 Timothy 3 says it this way in verse 1. Understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Isn't it amazing how many generations have lived who thought, Man, these are the worst days. And then several generations later, they said, those were the good old days. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's what Scripture's telling us. Yes, of course, there are bumps and dips, obviously. But from a zoomed-out view, it goes badly. Let me give you some practical implications of that. The next time you're reading an article, and they talk about the moral evolution of our culture, how our culture is getting wiser and more sophisticated and better. Just remember, friends, new is not always improved. (laughs) And a lot of the things we're being told that are getting better, from God's perspective, are getting worse, much worse, much worse. History, History is going to get worse. But before you get overly pessimistic and buy all the dystopian novels at the local store, remember the gospel is unstoppable. Did we not read that even as things are going bad, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed over the whole globe? In fact, rather than like bunkering down in the basement, this should actually burden us to take the message to all who need it. There is a king who's going to return. And when he returns, you will either rejoice or you will wail. So claim him as king now. Remember also, I have this as number three, false teachers will be all over. Why are we surprised of that? 
it just is so interesting to me how often Christians are like, oh, I can't believe how many false teachers are out there. Remember chapter 23, the chapter before this, Jesus gives seven woes to the religious leaders for their false teaching. And here in chapter 24 and 25, he's only speaking to his disciples. Let me give you another real-world implication. Um, if you really struggle with being the odd man out culturally, you're going to have to get over that. You're going to have to get over that. Being a Christian means that you have truth that shapes your life that isn't shaping the other people's lives. Jesus is speaking to his disciples with truth the other people don't care to hear or don't embrace, meaning that we live differently than people around us live. We know the end. We know who controls it. We know where it's going. So of course we live differently than everybody else in the culture. On the practical level, you should be concerned if you find your life overlaps with a non-believer almost one for one. Why would it? You know the Lord of history and where it's going. It's totally different than the way they're living. So number five on your bulletin, Jesus, the true Messiah, returns victoriously. This is the message of Scripture. We have a blessed hope. We have a glorious future. We have a conquering king, and he will return. I love how Revelation 22, three times in the chapter, this is the last chapter of the Bible, and Jesus repeatedly says, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Now today we're just in chapter 24, but Lord willing, in the future chapters, we're going to see Jesus give parables of watchfulness. Because he's coming back, you need to watch and you need to be ready. And each parable ends with destructive calamity for those who are not ready. The pictures are grisly, vivid, and and sobering. And here's what that reminds us of. It reminds us of what the morning show couldn't figure out. That those who know the Lord have eternal life, and those who reject the Lord have eternal punishment. Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And what that means for you now is that this is why the Bible says today is the day for salvation. If you're here listening to this this morning and you've been on the fence about Jesus Christ, it's an important decision, it's a momentous decision, but hear me, it's also an urgent decision. It's one that needs to be made. You cannot spend your life waffling about your relationship with Jesus. You must turn to Jesus in trust to be saved. This passage reminds us of why Revelation not only says, I am coming soon, but then it says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes so they have the right to the tree of life. The bride and the spirit say, Come, And let the one who is thirsty come, and the one who desires the water of life receive it without price. We don't earn the water of life. Jesus Christ did by his life, death on the cross, and his resurrection. But he offers it and invites us urgently to take it. Number seven, we can know all we need to know, but never all there is to know. We can know all we need to know, but never all there is to know. One of the most arrogant things in our culture today is the false humility of thinking, well, because I can't know something completely, I can't know it certainly. And so it's become popular to not make a definitive claim about things. We have the word of the Lord. There is nothing more definitive. We know all we need to know. 
We never will know all there is to know. Only God knows all there is to know. But we know all we need to know here. Let me remind us then of some implications of that for how we live on a practical level. This means that though the Bible has sections that are complex, the Bible is always understandable. 2 Peter 3 says this. This is Peter, and he says, There are some things that are hard to understand in Paul's letters. So be encouraged. (laughs) If you've ever struggled with Romans, so did Peter. And yet, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul says this about Timothy. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings that are able to make you wise unto salvation. That means, yes, Scripture has portions that are complex, but all of it is clear enough to be understood by anyone. Here's something I want you to to take home about that. Never be afraid to read any portion of the Bible. Don't sit at home and say, I can't understand Matthew 24. I can't wade through Jeremiah. You can. You can. God gives you teachers. He gives you people to help. But you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word. It can be understood. Do not be scared away from Scripture. Finally, number eight. And this is going to mainly be the sermons to follow. But Jesus calls his followers to live responsibly, faithfully, compassionately, and courageously while they watch for his return. I hate that liberal churches skip over these chapters of the Bible as if like, well, the future has no bearing on the present. Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) You know what Martin Luther once said? He said, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And that's a good way to think about it. When you know what the two days on your calendar are, it changes all the ones in between. Now, yes, I will grant you that maybe there is a kind of Christian that gets overly eager about the charts and all that. But let's be honest, broadly speaking, our problem in America is that we will be slumbering when he returns. So we need to realize that the question is not if Jesus is coming, and the question isn't even really when is Jesus coming? The question is, so what do we do now? And that's what this passage works towards. And let me remind you of the six we got already. How do we live in light of the end today? Number one, do not be led astray. People will twist the truth. Go to Scripture. Number two, do not be alarmed when you see wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. Number three, don't be surprised when things get bad. Number four, don't be afraid. True Christians will persevere by God's good grip. Number five, do not lose hope. The gospel will go global through our obedience. And number six, don't forget, the king of kings returns and gathers all who are his. Let's pray together this morning. God, this morning we wait for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we cry out, even so, Lord, quickly come. Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. There are probably a lot of different feelings we could have when we read a passage like this. Help us to feel as you would want us to feel. Help us to feel joy, knowing that there is life after this life. And that if we know Jesus, we have eternal life. Help us to feel confidence 
that Jesus is with us till the end of the age and that he will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to feel urgency. People around us, if they do not come to know Jesus, will eternally be separated from the grace of God. We must share the gospel with them and do so boldly. Lord, help us to feel awareness that Christians are not like the world, and that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. The world thinks like the world thinks. The world's always going to be the world. We just need to be the church. Lord, help us to also not be alarmed and afraid when we see bad things happening all around us. There is someone sovereign over history, and he is working the story to the right conclusion. Lord, thank you that you wrote the first chapter and you wrote the last chapter. And so if we know the Alpha and Omega, we know where we're going. But perhaps someone this morning is hearing this truth and it, they realize, I, I've been on the fence. I haven't been willing to make that commitment. And honestly, this is a great time because a lot of the world is falling away and a lot of the church has left. And that's happening all over the place. So what a great time to commit to Jesus and to know that you're his forever. So help someone to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And then help us to know the end and to live in light of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.